Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. Well, hey, for those of you who are just joining us, we're continuing in a series called He Knows My Name where each week we are looking at one of two things, either uh, God revealing himself to us and revealing more of his, who he is, his character to us through the covenant names of God uh, that he reveals throughout scripture, or as we're about to look at, uh, where someone experiences a characteristic of God, and as they experience it, they say, wow, you are the God who or you are the God of, and they give this name or this characteristic to God because they have experienced something from God. Uh, We're actually going to look at the second one. So if you have a Bible, we're going to jump right in, open it up to the book of Genesis, chapter 16. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair uh, left or right of you or under the chair in front of you, um, somewhere around there. Now, this, this particular uh, characteristic of God that we're going to look at, uh, this name is only used this particular time, once in Scripture, but it's powerful because I think it's something we probably experienced ourselves at numerous times, depending upon where you are in your life's journey and your relationship with God. So I'm going to jump into the middle of what's taken place here. I'm going to give you a little uh, summary but if you have time, go back and read this account because it's, it's an amazing account of what God does uh, through his promises to reveal himself to humanity. Uh, there's a guy named um, Abraham. Currently, his name is Abram. God later changes his name to Abraham. And his wife's name is Sarah. Currently, it's Sarai. God later changes it to Sarah. And God shows up to Abraham and says, I want you to leave your entire family because through you, I'm going to create a people that I use to reveal that I exist to the world. And also through you, I'm going to multiply your descendants, and one of your descendants is going to be the Messiah, the promised one, God in the flesh, to, co- to come and be with people and not be God over people. And so he promises, hey, I'm going to give you a descendant. Now, at the time he made that promise, um, Abraham was 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 65. Now, that's, they lived a lot longer back then, so don't look at, you know, a senior citizen's home and think, they're all having babies. It's not that kind of thing. But Abraham was probably somewhere in his 45 and Sarah was 35 at the time that God made that promise. What we're about to jump into is in chapter 16, verse 1. It says, now Sarai, or who would later be Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, two things I want to point out. First and foremost, not everything that we read in the Bible is God saying, go ye and do. But there are things that we read in the Bible where God is showing us, here's what humanity does. And the thing that Sarai is saying is, hey, I can't have kids. So you, my husband, go sleep with my maidservant, and she will give you a kid that we will call ours. 
Now, it's not that God is endorsing that, that ladies, if you can't have children, that you send your husband off with, you know, the butcher, the baker, or the bank teller to go have children on your behalf. And, and here's the other thing. The thing that she is saying, God, she's saying, God won't allow me to have children. But 10 years ago, God said, I am going to give you a child. Now, at this time, uh, she is about 75, 76, and Abraham is about 85 or 86. They have been waiting 10 years. And now, honestly, be, be, be honest, raise your hand. Have you ever got tired of waiting on God? Where you're like, God, you know what, this job, you know, the funds are running out, um, you're waiting on God, or for healing, or for a spouse, or for whatever, and you just say, you know what, I'm just going to do it myself. And those of you who didn't raise your hands, that's okay, because there will come a time where you will get tired of waiting on God to show up. But we usually expect that God, you know, to show up, he's like dominoes, 30 minutes or less, or it's free. That's not the way he works. If, If you know anything about having a relationship with God, it's usually way longer than what you expect. I expect that I'm only going to be out of work six months. God will have a job for me because that's how much savings I have. And 18 months later, you're still trying to figure out how am I going to pay the bills? But God doesn't work that way. But let me finish. Let me, let me show you what else happens. Verse three, Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. Was anyone surprised by that? Not a guy in the house. Okay, Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Now, think about this. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but think about this. Hagar, when they were in Egypt, they happened to acquire her. In some versions, it says that she was a slave, but that's not exactly what she was. She was a maidservant. She got hired by the family to be the help. Now think about this. I, I, I've heard a lot of sermons on, on this thing, and here, here's, here's, here's the hard part to swallow. Abram and Sarah, I know, I mean, you've got to think how desperate Sarah must have been to tell her husband to go sleep with someone else. But think about Hagar's position. Think about if you show up for a family, And they say, we want you to clean, we want you to cook, we want the meals done by this. And then 10 years into your employment, they pull you aside and say, look, we can't have kids, so you're up. Think about how she must have felt. She felt like an object. And you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever been in a situation either where at work or at school or your friends, they looked at you as only as an object that they can use to get something that they wanted? Because that's what they did to her. Now, she left Egypt, and she was probably a lot younger than they were. Uh, most theologians think she was in her teens or maybe young adult age, less than 30 years old. She was alone. She moved to a different country with people she didn't know to get a job. And the next thing you know, granted 10 years later, they're putting impositions on her that weren't discussed during the interview. They're asking her to do things that might have made you and I 
uh, probably extremely uncomfortable. They basically just looked at her and said, well, you're an object. You work for us. You're not an employee. You're not a person. You are a tool for us to use. And this is what this whole talk about, because here's the thing. There's usually a difference in the way we see ourselves, the way we think other people see us, and then the way God sees us. Now, most of us, the way that we see ourselves is, hey, I'm okay. I've I've, I've pretty much got it together. You know, I, I can make my life work. You know, at a wild guesstimate, I would say probably 75, 85% of the population, we see ourselves that way, is I'm okay. There's about 15% that see themselves in what I call the Kanye Westism syndrome, where they think they are the be-all, the end-all. Does anyone know who Kanye West is? Okay, Google it. And Google Northwest, and you'll see the baby picture, but... They think that they are the end-all and the be-all and that the world and the sun and the universe revolves around them. They think that they are the most gifted, they are the most talented, they are the rock stars. These are the people that leave jobs not because they were fired, because they weren't getting enough accolades, not because they weren't getting enough money, they just weren't getting enough accolades, they weren't getting enough attention. These are the people that leave relationships because not the whole relationship isn't focused on me, so I have to leave this one and find one that is. Now, here's the other thing. There are people that see ourselves that way, but most of the population, um, we tend to focus on how we think other people see us. And this is what happens, especially like Hagar in youth and young adults. We look at other people in school and home and work, and we worry about how they see us. We make decisions about should we do this thing or that thing based on What are they going to think about me? Should I take this job or that job? Not is it going to supply my needs and my family, but are people going to laugh at me if I'm working double shifts at McDonald's and Wendy's, but I'm going to end up making enough money to pay my bills? We tend to focus on how we think other people see us. And most of us think other people see us as standoffish, we think they're talking about us. We think they're gossiping about us. We, we, we consume ourselves with what other people think about how we're doing, what we're doing, what we're driving, where we're living, how we're dressed. A lot of you, as you move into um, corporate America, it's not as much of an issue with how you dress. I mean, they usually have a corporate policy. You can't wear this and that. And you walk in, as long as you have a suit, a shirt, a tie, or whatever, you're fine. But when you're in that young adult culture when you're heading out to the club, when you're in school, when you're going to an event with your friends, you spend more time worrying about what to wear there than you do spend actually there, except for guys who we just grab whatever's on top of the pile, put it on, and we think we look good. All right, so here's, here's, this is the way Hagar saw herself. She saw herself as an object. Now, here's the important thing. This is how God sees us when God looks at us. God sees us not the way other people see us, not the way he sees, not the way we see ourselves. God looks at us and he sees this unfinished creation because he's not looking at what you are right now. He's looking at all that he wants you to be. He's looking at the potential that's untapped inside of you. 
He's looking at the creative abilities that you have yet to express. He's looking not just at what you are now. He's looking at what you are now, what you're going to be in 10 years, what you're going to be in 20 years. And he's looking at the impact that you are going to have on generations to come. And most of us, we think, I don't even matter to generations to come. But there are children and grandchildren who look back and are going to be referring to and thinking about and making decisions based on the ways that we here today have impacted their lives. And God looks at all of that. He's not only looking at, you know what, Floyd, here's the 10 things that you did wrong today. And they're repeats of the 17 things that you did wrong last week which are repeats of what you've continued to do year after year. Yeah, God sees all that. But he's focusing on, Floyd, here's the two things that you did right. Here's here's how much you and I get to spend time together. And here's all I want to do through you if you will let me. And again, all God asks in return is that we just let him. Jump down to verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you're responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6, your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, Hagar, so she fled from her. This is what happened after she got pregnant. Uh, she started kind of walking around with the pregnant baby, like, why does my back hurt so bad? Oh, that's right, because I'm pregnant and you're not. So she started being a little bit more flippant, a little bit arrogant. But the way the verse reads, the response from Sarah wasn't just to be mean back or to say things back. The language literally indicates that she began to physically and emotionally bully Hagar. And then Hagar ran away. Now, her name literally means flight. It means flight. That's what Hagar means. And it's likely that the reason that she ended up with them 10 years ago when they were in Egypt is because she was running away from problems at home. It takes a whole lot, either, either, either an issue or a calling for someone to leave everything Go with people you don't know to a country you've never been to. And it's likely that she was leaving because something else had arisen, either in her family or her workplace. And she said, no way, I'm not taking this. And she ran. And this is what happens when you think about it. I'm not saying she's innocent because when they approached her, uh, she could have said, you know what? That's not how I roll. I mean, you guys got to find somebody else. I may cook, I may clean, but I don't do that kind of thing. She could have said no. But she said, you know what? Yeah, I'll do it. And it's likely, it's likely that she thought that if I do this thing, then they will look at me, again, how people see me, they're going to look at me differently. It's likely, she thought, they'll see me no longer as just an employee, an employee or an acquaintance, but they will see me as someone that matters. I'm going to rise up on the scale of how they view people. Now, think about this. How many of you, don't point to the person next to you, have people in your circle of influence, work, home, or school, 
that they care that much about how people think of them that they've done some pretty stupid things so that people would raise them up on the scale. They've either done something crazy, maybe hung out with the wrong people and did something illegal or something wrong or something just outrageous just so other people would look at them and say, hey, that was pretty cool. You're not as geeky as I thought. You're not as dumb as I thought. You're not as weak as I thought because of this thing you just did. Now here, I'm going to put the rest of the verses up on the screen. After, after Hagar ran, this is what it says, the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and humbly submit to her control. Also the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be numbered for multitude. Now we have to understand this is not just the angel of the Lord. It is Jesus Christ. And let me show you why. It says the angel of the Lord said, said to her, go back. But the angel of the Lord also said, I will multiply your descendants. Now later on, and just a few chapters later, we're told that the one who multiplied her descendants was God. And what this is, is what theologians call um, a theophany, is where God shows up. A Christophany is where Christ shows up. Before he was born in a manger, he still showed up in and amongst people, being who he was, who he is, God to them, showing up in their lives, but this was before we knew him as Jesus Christ, born in, a, born in a manger. And so God shows up and he says, I am going to do this in your life, despite your situation, despite you thinking you're a victim, despite you worrying about how everybody else sees you, I'm going to show up in your life. And the angel of the Lord continued, see now you are with child and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael. And if you remember, I said El is that, that prefix or suffix that means God. And Ishmael means God hears or literally heard of God. She said, you're to call his name because the Lord has heard and paid attention to reflect your affliction. Now get this, every single time she called his name, she was reminded, God hears me. Every single time, she said, Ishmael, get your hands off the cookies. Ishmael, go take out the trash. Ishmael, change your clothes. Every single time, she was reminded that when I was in this situation, God heard me. God showed up in my life. And he was reminded every single time, whether it be his mother or a schoolmate or someone at work, whoever called his name, he was reminded, I'm here because God showed up in my mother's life. And he, Ishmael, will be a wild ass among men. His hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he will live to the east and on the borders of all his kinsmen. And this is where it gets good in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, have I not even here in the wilderness looked upon him who sees me and lived? Or have I here also seen the future purposes or designs of him who sees me? Basically, she said, I'm going to call you the God who sees, Elroy, because even though I'm here in the wilderness, you have seen my situation, you've seen my trouble. And regardless, it's an indication of us, regardless of where you are, what situation you're in, what age of life, what stage of life, that God is still able to see and respond to us and our calls. And the last thing it says is, 
Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, a well to the living one who sees me. It is between Kadesh and Bered. And this is what God does. He shows up in our lives. And most people think, hey, you know what? I haven't seen God showing up because Jesus Christ didn't show up to me and say, hey, Floyd, I see your problem. I hear you. Here's the answer to your problem. But sometimes what God does is he sends people who will show up and say, hey, how can I be of help to you to maybe equip you, to prepare you, for what God wants to do in your life. And you guys know Karen. She's here with us today. And literally, to an extent, this is what she does. She travels around the world, literally around the world, going to places to help equip and prepare people for what God wants to do through them. And sometimes it's in big, glorious cities, like, wow, that's awesome. But sometimes it's just like that, in a wilderness place where no one wants to go, no one wants to be seen, And no one definitely wants to step out of this glorious city to go help people there. So I'm going to ask her to come up, and she's going to share a little bit about uh, some of the places she's been and things that she's been doing since we've last seen her. And as they turn on the black mic, here you go. Well, good morning. It is so great to be back here and to, to see you guys and to have an opportunity to share about what God's been doing. It's fun that you're doing the names of God Ah, yes, I'm in charge. <laughs> it's fun that you're doing the names of God because um, because it won't work. There you go. Um, this year, I had a friend who challenged me to ask God to give me a word for the year. And there were a lot of people doing that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't usually like to jump in on what everybody's doing. So when she invited me to come to this party to talk about this, I went because I had a bunch of friends that were going to be there with no intention of choosing a word that God might give me for the year. So as I was there listening to the talk, all of a sudden I heard this word come to my mind. And I thought, what is that? So as people were going around the room sharing their words, I'm like, yeah, I don't got one. Um, Because I wasn't ready to jump in yet. So over the next course of the next few days, I felt like God kept bringing this word to me, and the word was courage. Like, well, that's odd. Okay, courage. So I began to pray, and I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to claim that as my word for the year. And I began to look in the Bible to see what does the Bible have to say about courage. And the thing that I noticed, not 100% of the time, but almost always, when the word courage was used, God would say, be courageous, be strong and courageous, take courage. It was followed by four, I am with you. Or don't be afraid in Matthew, it is I take courage. And so um, Emmanuel, God is with us, was the word that came to my mind that actually plays into the God who sees because he sees because he's with me. And the way this ties into my ministry is that I'm often in places doing things that are not comfortable. I wonder, should I say something? Shouldn't I say something? You know, will this get me into trouble? How do I do this? And God reminds me, I am with you. And so I wanted to share some of the stories from the past year of the way God has led me into ministry and has given me courage to take steps of faith. Now, kind of as a hobby ministry, it's still part of Crew Campus Crusade for Christ, but it's not my main ministry. Y'all may remember is I have the privilege on a number of occasions of being a chaplain for major sporting events 
And last year, um, I served at the Olympics and the Paralympics as a chaplain. And so this is just a, a picture of me standing in the Olympic Village during the Olympics with the Olympic rings. And the thing about working as a chaplain for the Olympics, you have a lot of rules around what you do. Uh, one is you can't proselytize. Well, you have to understand that means, you know, taking the initiative to share Christ. But they considered putting a poster up advertising Sunday service as proselytizing. So I felt like I was in some of the close countries that I have served in around the world where you had to be extremely careful about what you did and said. But, you know, God provided opportunities and would give me courage to uh, speak up and say things. Just to show you, I worked in a multi-faith chapel. And what that means, we're not interfaith, but we had one room that was a lounge and then many other rooms where... You know, one was for the Protestants, one's the Catholics, one the Jewish, one the Muslims, one the Buddhist, one the Hindus. And there was a room for people that were nothing because people complained, well, what about somebody who doesn't believe anything? So we had a room for people who didn't believe anything, believe it or not, because they want to, you know, appease everyone. So um, it worked one of two ways. Often athletes and coaches would come to the chapel looking for us, but we also went out into the village to meet people. And these were just a number of people that I served with. Here's the interesting thing about working in a multi-faith chapel. When else would I have an opportunity and for two weeks to sit and have conversations with a Muslim imam who would never talk to a woman outside of that, you know, kind of context? So it gave me opportunities to talk to people of different faiths, learn about them as a person, understand more of their story, but also allow them to hear mine. During the last week of uh, the Olympics, the Jewish rabbi asked if he can come to our Bible study, and he began to attend the Christian Bible study every day. And so not only was there influences on athletes and coaches, but on uh, members of other communities of faith who were there. A couple quick stories. This is Elodie. Elodie is from Mauritius. I had to look that up on a map. It's southern tip kind of island off of Africa. About a month before the Olympics, I received an email that was addressed to myself and to Elodie from a mutual friend of ours saying, hey, Elodie just made the Mauritius beach volleyball team. You need to meet each other. So we emailed back and forth. And about a day or two before the Olympics started, um, I'm in the chapel sitting around. We weren't doing much then. There weren't many athletes in the village. But this woman comes up, and she looks around. She goes, is there a Karen here? It was Elodie. And we began to talk, found out she hadn't even checked into her room yet. She had gone downstairs to get her practice schedule, saw the chapel signs, and came directly upstairs. Elodie and I met about every day during the Olympics to talk and to pray. And the word courage, God allowed me to encourage her in her walk in the faith as she had uh, all this pressure on her to compete. Um, really, it was David and Goliath. They're such a small country they were totally not expected to do anything. And yet she had the courage to go out there and to compete against athletes from countries that were just really, really good. This is Jenny, Jennifer. This was her third Olympics. We have stayed in touch over three Olympics. And it was interesting, the ministry that God gave me with Jennifer, I was, it was totally unexpected. She came up. We met again on a mutual, ba on a regular basis. But the first day she came up, she's like, Karen, can we talk? I'm like, of course. And we went and talked, and through tears, she shared with me the story of her life and her family over the last year. These are things that you never hear or see in the media. She began to tell me how this, I know her family from the, 
over the years, Christian family homeschooled their kids, but almost a year ago, her mother decided she was out of there, and she left the family. Not only that, Jennifer was engaged, her mother refused to even come to her engagement party and to her wedding. And so this gal, who's the number one archer in the U.S., was broken on the inside with grief and sadness. And God allowed me to encourage her in her faith and in her walk with the Lord as she not only competed, but as she dealt with some really hard issues in her life. During the Paralympics, um, we had similar ministry. But one thing we did is Johnny Erickson's uh, Wheels for the World was also working to provide wheelchairs for athletes and coaches from countries that don't normally get good wheelchairs. So in the chapel, we would let people know, and we'd help them get down to the church. And on this particular day, um, a group of men from Palestine decided to come down and get some wheelchairs. Now, obviously, they're Muslim men. And so I learned how to fit wheelchairs and get the right wheelchair for the right type of needs. And so we did all that. And at the end of our time with um, people, we would always offer them information about Johnny's ministry and a Bible. Well, as we normally did, we offered these men those materials. And one of the gentlemen took the Bible and he said to us, he said, you know, I want to read about this God of yours who would cause you to serve us like this. So here's this Muslim man who accepted a Bible because he wanted to know about the God that would cause us to serve him. And it was just interesting. It made me think about the, the verse that says, they'll know we are Christians by our love because we were not preaching the gospel there, but we were living the gospel through acts of kindness and service and compassion, which opens someone's heart to want to know more. Now, my day job, what I do most of the year is I do travel to equip men and women around the world to be better leaders and ministers in their own culture. Our desire in Campus Crusade crew, as we call it in the U.S., is that other countries are not dependent on us to come, but that we are empowering and equipping them so they can propel their ministry forward. They understand the culture. They, their language is their first language. They're far better equipped than we are coming from the outside. So this is a picture of a time in South Korea where we had staff from all over that area of the world, all of those Asian countries who came together because we have a program or a workshop we do on building powerful ministry teams. Number the, the number one reason or one of the reasons that missionaries leave the field is they don't get along with other missionaries, which just breaks my heart. But often teams come together and they work as a team, but really they're just a group because they're, they're doing their own thing and they just kind of come together to meet. But if they can really work together, they're much more powerful and they can have a better, better and bigger, more effective impact for the Lord. And so we do a three-day workshop where we teach people how they can work better as a team, how they can um, learn to cooperate with one another, how they can form synergy, how they can have processes in place and that will help them figure out how to do things in ways that really will be more beneficial instead of everybody going in their own direction. How they can understand what each other has to offer and can draw on one another's strengths when they have a need in their particular area. And so this was actually a group that we brought in because we were training them to do that workshop. Again, we don't want Asia to need us to come do it. And so we were training these men and women to be able to um, go and to equip teams in their countries so that those teams can work together. And so I'm not even sure how many people we trained, but you can see the group there. 
and now they are able to do the workshop. Now here's the thing about what I do. I love what I do. I love equipping and empowering people, but I keep working myself out of jobs because I'm equipping other people to do it so then they don't need me. But it's funny how God continues to raise up opportunities for me to do things. Uh, this is me doing a workshop in Canada with staff from all over Canada. Um, people thought I was crazy. I went to Canada in January. But I went to Vancouver, which is actually fairly warm. But being from Florida, it was still kind of cold to me. But um, this work was a coaching workshop. I was helping people understand how they can use coaching skills as they work with their staff, but also as they disciple and work with athletes. And so this was a, a two-day workshop that I had a, a great time doing, a lot of good feedback. But then I stayed another couple days, again, to train Canadians how they can do the same workshop throughout Canada so that they didn't need someone like me to come in and do it for them. Now, I should have put this picture, but one of the highlights from, from this trip um, was at the end of the trip, the gentleman who put it on, we had been in contact, and if any of you are hockey fans, you know, beginning of last year, there was a strike. So we would be on the phone going, can you believe they're still on strike? And I said, yeah, I've been going to the Solar Bear Games, which is a minor league team in Orlando. And they couldn't believe that I was a hockey fan. I'm like, hey, I'm from Pittsburgh. Of course I'm a hockey fan. So at the end of the, the time together, they're like, Karen, we have a gift for you. We think you're going to really like it, but it was really hard for us to purchase. And I'm thinking, what on earth? Well, they gave me a Penguins jersey. So that was just a fun little um, thank you that they gave me. But what's even more fun is the reports back I get from people of when they use the things that they're learning um, how God uh, works for them, works, works with them in using them. After doing this workshop in Singapore a couple of weeks later, uh, one of the Singapore staff who works with students on campus emailed me and said, Karen, I was meeting with a disciple and she asked me this question. I was just about ready to give her the answer when I thought, and this was kind of funny, Karen would say. And so she changed the way she was working with this individual and began to ask this individual questions to draw her out using a coaching approach so that this high school or this college student figured out for herself what the answer was to her question and now was more motivated to actually and go and do what she came up with because it was her idea not someone telling her you know you have to have a quiet time you got to read this you got to do that um, where it feels like a bunch of to do's and just a bunch of rules and regulations but it was really God working in her life showing her how she can grow in her faith um, while the discipler, the staff woman, just ask her some questions to help her think through it. One of the things, this is a picture from the Olympic Village, and just obviously in the Olympic Village there were athletes from around the world. It reminds me of the verse, Revelation, that says, you know, when we stand before the throne, there'll be every tongue and tribe and nation will be represented. And honestly, I'd look around the Olympic Village and there was a hundred and 90-some countries represented, I think. And so pretty much got a foretaste of what that might be like, except they weren't praising and worshiping the God we know, the God of the universe. They were praising and worshiping the medals that they might be winning. But this reminds me of just how there's people all around the world that need to know the Lord, people in our own backyards. And I travel the world as a missionary, and sometimes I forget that when I'm home, I'm still a missionary. I'm still responsible before the Lord to look for opportunities to share my faith and help people grow. So uh, probably two months ago, I was sitting in a doctor's office, first time I went there, walked in, it's packed, 
What I didn't know, there were eight doctors, which, whoo, that was a relief because I thought I'm never going to get in. But I'm filling out the paperwork, and out of the corner of my ear, I hear this woman say, I'm Jewish, but I want to go to heaven, and I know that I need to be a Christian to do that. I don't know what to do. Unfortunately, the gentleman she was work, talking to, the best answer he had for her was, oh, you need to talk to my pastor. It broke my heart because as Christians, we're all ambassadors for the Lord, and we're all to be responsible to be able to give an account for the hope that's within us. And so his answer as they continued the conversation just, it was breaking my heart. It wasn't doing it. So I'm starting to write a note to her, you know, like, you know, the Messiah that you're looking for has already come. And, you know, I'm going on and on. And, um, and then I, you know, so I have this note written, but now it's like, how do I give it to her? And this is where courage came in because I needed God to encourage me and to push me to step out in faith and to actually give this testimony of, to the Lord um, that I'd written to this lady. So I'm looking around, and the place is packed, and don't you know, God is so gracious. The woman next to her got up and left. And I took a breath. I'm like, oh, okay, Lord, give me courage, give me courage. And I go over, and I sit next to her. Okay, now what, Lord? You know. And I finally said, excuse me, ma'am. This is going to sound really weird to you. But I overheard your conversation a few few minutes ago saying that you want to go to heaven, and you know that revolves around Christianity and being a Christian. I can answer your question. Well, you saw her, her face light up, and I began to share with her how a person can know God personally. Unfortunately, I wasn't carrying anything with me that I can leave her, but I gave her, you know, the note that I had written. I shared the gospel with her and um, gave her my phone number, and I have not heard back from her, but only God knows how he used the presentation of the gospel in the moment. What it did for me that day, it reminded me that um, I am always on as a Christian. It's not because I'm in full-time Christian work and that I sometimes go around the world. It's because I'm a believer and because I'm an ambassador for Christ that I need to be prepared to give a testimony of what God has done and what he will do for others. And it also saddened me that people don't know how. Either they don't know how to share the gospel or they're not confident themselves. And so I was just really convicted of the need to really um, help people with that. Let's see. Oh, yes, I want to say thank you. I am home um, right now. This is the time of year when I often come back and I meet with ministry partners, people who partner with me like this church does as a congregation to make my ministry possible and with individuals who partner with me and also to raise more support. People, people have asked me, why do you always need to raise support? Well, here's the, the short end of it. When I came on staff, most of my ministry partners were 20 and 30 years older than me. And so over the years, people have retired. They've gone into nursing homes. They've gone home to be with the Lord, and the cost of living has increased. And so honestly, this is another area where I need courage because over the years, I've grown weary of always needing to raise funds for my ministry. I will say that God has always been faithful. So, you, so I'm like, Karen, what's your problem? But it is something that, um, you know, honestly, I'd rather not do. But God has called me to this ministry, and so I do it. And I, and I pray that he'll give me courage to do it. So I want to thank you as a congregation because you do give to my ministry um, on a monthly basis. I want to let you know that I have some brochures about my ministry. I would love to meet with anybody who'd like to hear more details. Obviously, you have gotten just a thumbnail skim of the ministry God has called me to, so I'd love to tell you more. 
And if God would lead anyone to want to get involved personally or just to ask some questions about that, you know, feel no pressure. I love sharing about my ministry, and I leave it to God whether he leads someone to join me or not. But I would ask you to pray for me, that you would pray that he would give me courage, courage to go to some of the places in the world that I think twice about, but I choose to step out and trust him and go to. Pray that he would keep me healthy and safe as I travel when I'm at home working. Pray um, for my ministry funding, that God would provide in ways that I wouldn't imagine. He always seems to do that. And that um, I would ask you to even pray and ask if God would have you to join with me, whether in giving a special gift or joining me on a monthly or quarterly basis to help provide the needs for my ministry. But most of all, I want to thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to update you. Um, thanks so much for, for being in partnership with me. And I'm going to be a real Pittsburgher today. I'm so excited because after this, I'm going to get changed, and I'm going to the Pirates game today with my family. So, yeah. So I'm excited that, you know, I don't really get home during hockey or football season a lot, but I'm glad that I can uh, cheer on the home team today. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, let me just, uh, as the band comes up, I want to share this quick story with you. And uh, we're, we're, we're not going to sing again. I just want to spend a little bit of time in prayer that um, Stephen and I were working on this entire series months ago uh, and trying to flesh out, you know, which names we do and, and how we do and which ones are going to speak to people the most and which, which names of God are going to have an impact on people. And I, I kind of played with Elroy, because it's probably one of those names of God that people have never heard before. Like I said, it's only in this particular aspect is it used. But it speaks to something that we've probably all experienced, wondering, you know, God, do you, do you see what I'm going through right now? Do you see how hard this is or how much hurt this, this is causing me? And... Um, I apologize to Karen because she left me a message weeks ago <laughs> saying, hey, I'm going to be in town. Is there a good time to come visit? And, of course, it took me weeks to get back to her. And, and it just worked out that this would be the weekend that she came. And, and, you know, God couldn't have worked it out any better than not only to hear from God's mouth the story of someone saying, God, you do see me but to hear the story of people from all over the world who travel to the Olympics and um, come with stuff that they don't even know if there is a God, or maybe they do, and they're just wondering, does he know what I'm going through? And for God to use Karen either there or to go to their country or go to their nation and say, you know what? God does hear you. He, he knows what you need. He knows how this is going to help you, how this is going to equip you. Uh, this is going to prepare you for what I have in store for you. Because like I said before, the way God sees us is not like we see people. We see people through the lenses of our life experiences. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not so good thing because it causes us to prejudge people. But God looks through like a magnifying glass. And I hope my eye doesn't look really weird to you guys right now. But he looks through like a magnifying glass. And doesn't just take this one flaw or this one situation that has been a roadblock to us. But he's looking at once we get past that. He's looking at once we're over the hill, once we've gotten through the hardship, 
once the emotional or physical healing has come. He's kind of magnified our life. And he's looking and he's seeing the amazing things that he can do through us. And he's looking and seeing the amazing things he can do through you. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And God, we know that we, we all come from different experiences in our life, different walks of life, different life experiences that have brought us to this place. But unfortunately, this is one of the places where people seem to think God sees us the least. When we gather on Sunday mornings and we gather as your people, and, and a lot of us will walk in with hurts, with pains, with expectations, with things that we are hoping that God will do in our lives. And sometimes we walk out feeling like God didn't hear me. God didn't see my need. God didn't see my hurt. So God, we want to pray for anyone here right now who is in that place, who's wondering, does God see what I'm going through? Does God know how much I'm hurting? Does God know how much I'm longing for either relationship or companionship or just relief from the stresses of just day-to-day life? And God, we lift those people up to you right now and ask that you, not me, that you, not Karen, that you would speak to their hearts and let them know that you are the God who sees them. And God, we pray for people who may have maybe don't even know you. And there's that little hint from even just a little bit of maybe there is a God. We pray that you would speak to their heart right now as well. That you would let them know, as Karen said, that they can know you personally. That they don't have to hear stories about how you show up in people's lives. But they can experience you showing up in their life right now by just asking God, will you come and see me? God, we pray that your hand is upon us as a congregation that we would continue to not only support Karen, but continue to support uh, our other missionaries and people who you use to go to places where uh, we don't even think about going. And as Karen said, some nations and neighborhoods and communities, we don't even know they exist on the planet. But you see the need there. And where we can't go or unable to go, Allow us to support, encourage, and pray for Karen and other people that you call to go. And God, we don't just lift up her financial needs, but we pray that you would give her a continued spirit of encouragement and a continued passion to enjoy, to love what you have called her to do. That she would be a blessing in the lives of those people. God, we just thank you so much for your blessing, the grace, the blessings, the mercy that you continue to pour out upon us. And we 
pray that you would bless us as we leave this place and that we would leave this place knowing that beyond a shadow of a doubt, not because the pastor said it or because it was read in the Bible or because Karen talked about it, but that every one of us would know that God sees us. Thank you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Before you leave, um, I know we've gone a few minutes long, but before we leave, uh, just spend some time, take some time, uh, get to know Karen. Even if you're not able to support her financially, one of the things that helps a lot of missionaries in the field is just knowing that the people are praying for them and that are communicating, email, Facebook, whatever, and encouraging them. And knowing that there are people who see them while they're out there seeing and meeting the needs of others.